Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 14, you'll hear Byron Bowers. And I was like, hey, is your balls tingling? And he was like, what? But I thought he meant like, what? He couldn't hear me. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is orlando julius behind me now and this is the best of risk number 14 every five months or so we like to do these little compilations of some just some of our favorite stories of the past several episodes these best of risk episodes are perfect for sharing with friends who might be new to the podcast because they're just so jam-packed with great stuff they're also usually a good deal longer than our usual episodes so feel free to press pause or stop and come back to listen to the rest of the episode sometimes later this episode might be three different subway trips or three different walking the dogs <laughs> in a little bit we're going to hear from new york-based burlesque performer jezebel express but before that a hilarious story from byron bowers Byron shared this at the Los Angeles Risk Show that we do once a month at the Bootleg Theater, and it's called Trippy. Man, I was on tour for Adult Swim in 2012, and, you know, I'm not much of a drinker. You tell I got ginger beer. I'm such a lightweight, because I got addicts in my family. So, we was going through Texas. We already went through Seattle and Portland. You know, those are party places. And then we going through Texas. And uh, the guy I on tour with, he was like, hey man, I got these two pills. Uh, that we can't take through Texas. You want to take one? And like, we into the tour now. We like five, six shows in. I'm feeling good. I'm like, fuck it. What is it? And he's like, it's 2CI. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? I'm like, what is 2CI? He was like, it's like LSD and acid and uh, ecstasy all in one pill. And I didn't know what either of those things were. So I said, fuck it. You know what I mean? So I take a pill, we both take a pill, we cheers, we in this hotel room. I'm sitting down, you know what I mean? And we meditate, we would meditate every evening. So you got two black dudes, took a pill, we in the hotel room, we meditate <laughs> on some arm shit, you know what I mean? It ain't like what you would hear in the Tibetan monk shit, you know what I mean? It's two niggas harmonizing right now <laughs> on some beautiful shit, it's like, um, um, um. We feeling these vibrations, you know what I mean? Chakras is doing what the fuck chakras do. 
And I'm sitting there and my phone ring after the meditation. My phone ring, my manager called, started telling me all these ideas and shit she got planned. I can't process none of this shit. I'm just sitting there like, yep, that sounds good. Yep, but I'm feeling like joy. You know what I mean? Joy I normally don't feel. So everything she's saying is making me hype. Like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan, but I can't tell her how to like really finagle the shit. You know what I mean? I'm not aware of what's going on. I get off the phone. He's like, yo, they call us to come downstairs. I was like, all right, let me drop my headphones off in the room. You know how a hotel room is like a door to the hallway. It's a bathroom, and then it's the room. I walk past the bathroom, and he's in there. He's like brushing his teeth or whatever, and he turns, and then another part of him turns. And I'm, I do the dog thing. I cock my head like this, and he was like, what? Mind you, like, my dad is paranoid schizophrenia. So... You know that it's a chance that you could develop these things, right? So the first thing popped in my head when I see two of him turn around was like, oh, shit. And he was like, what? And I was like, nothing. You know? <laughs> I was like, I'll be back. I'm coming back down. And I come back downstairs. And uh, I remember looking at the elevator when the doors closed. You know how some elevators got mirrors? I remember when this door closed, I saw myself, like a version of myself. I had on like this olive green coat. I had on an olive green hat, bucket hat, you know what I mean? Five panel hat. I had a scarf on, multicolors, but the green in it matched the olive green in the hat. You know what I mean? Basically, I'm fly as fuck, right? <laughs> so, when the doors closed and I saw like myself, I was just like, I'm finna fuck the shit out of you. <laughs> and then I jump back like, oh shit. What the fuck? What the fuck was that about? You know what I mean? That shit is crazy, you know? Mind you, I'm still not aware of what's going on. So I'm walking, like, I walk, get out of the uh, elevator and I walk down the hall. And as I'm walking down the hall, the hall is expanding. Every step I take, the hall is just getting further and further, like on some Nightmare on M Street type shit. And I go knock on the door like, yo, what's up? Let me in. Yo, I got ready to go downstairs. Like 10 doors down, the door open, and my homeboy sticks his head out like, yo, what the fuck you doing? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, I thought you was down here. I think this hall just expanded 10 rooms, you know what I mean? <laughs> so he like, hurry up, let's go downstairs. We go downstairs, everybody's in the van. It's 11 of us. Cargo van, we on tour, we about to go to the restaurant. Somebody made reservations for us at this restaurant. It's like seven o'clock. This dude told me this shit gonna last seven hours. I don't know where we at in the time. All I know is he got in the van and I got on the bumper of the van. And I was like, turn the wipers on. And I just started doing this shit. Hey, ho, hey. And everybody was like, what the fuck? And somebody came out, grabbed me, put me in the van. We in El Paso, Texas, first off. Tell how this day started. Because I'm skipping something. I remember earlier that day, I was sitting in a jacuzzi thinking life was good. I'm on tour. I've started comedy. It seems to be working out at the moment. Matter of fact, let me take my shorts off and get in the pool. So I'm skinny dipping in a hotel in El Paso during the day. You know what I mean? Like one o'clock during the day. 
working out, you know what I mean? I call my grandmother, working out. She telling me about my dad and shit, you know what I mean? He's paranoid schizophrenic, but he been off drugs now probably for like eight years. And I was like, word, drugs are crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> and she's like, I'm so proud of you for doing what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, grandma, you know what I mean? I'm out here trying to do something, you know? That's happening before this whole night happened. So, I get in this van, right? And I'm sitting next to this dude who's one of the production guys on the tour. He don't get the hotel rooms. He got to stay on the tour bus, you know what I mean? So he's a little funky, right? <laughs> and I don't know what happened, but the smell, but it shit just kicks in on a whole nother level to where I'm offended, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like both his armpits just walked up to me and called me a nigga, and I'm like, what? He's <laughs> like, what the fuck you say? And I just started going in on how bad his armpit smell. Real fucked up shit, too, I'm saying. I'm like, your armpit smell like when Hitler gave a tour and he just did this with that same green jacket on the whole time. And all the hate just accumulated under his armpits. And then he got home at the end of the night and he was like, oh, shit. I should kill myself, you know. That's what your armpit smell like. Your armpits smell like Jesus' last breath when he was on the cross for all that time. And he ate the last supper and it digested in him. And then when he took his last burp from the last supper, that's what the fuck your armpits smell. So I'm just talking cash shit for 11 minutes. But I'm feeling good. Like every time I say something, I'm like, woo, you know. Yeah, you know, that's a good one. You know what I mean? I'm high-fiving myself. We get in this restaurant, now we walk in a restaurant, imagine you walk in a restaurant and it's like you walk in back in time. You in El Paso, Texas. I mean, it's cowboy boots, it's big ass belt buckles, it's fucking cowboy hats, it's like western shirts with the fucking fringe on it. They let you know, they put effort, this is going out for them, you know what I mean? And then 11 motherfuckers from LA, like hipsters and shit, just walk in the building like, yo, what's up, we in here? You know what I mean? And his family's in there. And I hear like a family laugh. It's like, ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. And I'm like, oh, shit. You know, still not aware of this thing kicking in yet until I saw the devil. I saw the devil, right? And I grabbed my homeboy like, oh, shit, there goes Satan. He was like, what? I'm like, that goes Satan. This dude had on a black shirt, all black. He was pale. He had a ponytail. He had like long fingernails. And he was there about to eat. He was having him a nice, calm meal as Satan would. You know what I mean? And I was like, yo, this restaurant has to be good if Satan eating here. Because he could have went anywhere in the world, but he chose to come here. You know what I mean? So we sit at the table. We sit down at the table. And the waitresses come up, you know what I mean? I think they Latin. I can't really tell, but all I know is uh, all of them look gorgeous. I mean, they look fine and a motherfucker. And like, you can see like the glow in their skin, you know what I mean? It's like they pores open and they pores just secreted just enough oil to make they shit smooth, you know? <laughs> and I'm just staring at all the waitresses while they trying to give orders. Uh, I'm just looking at them. And then I feel like a tingling sensation like in my ball region, you know what I mean? And I look over at my homeboy, he the only one that took a pill, and I was like, hey, is your balls tingling? And he was like, what? But I thought he meant like, what? He couldn't hear me. He meant like, like, what the fuck you say? So I was like, I said, is your balls tingling? 
we on this big ass table. He was like, oh, nah, nah, man, what the fuck? So I think, man, my ball's tingling, man. And I'm starting to like feel like turned on, you know what I mean? But like turned on like in a good way, like when you almost about to calm way. Like it's built up and you like, oh shit. And then a waitress come by and I'm like, excuse me. And my homeboy was like, no, 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 no. He stepped up, he's like, no, 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 no. I was like, I don't know who did your makeup, but that is the most beautiful ass job I ever seen before in my life. And she was like, thank you, thank you. And my homeboy was like, oh shit, oh, okay. Okay, uh, so I'm still dealing with this feeling, right? I'm getting turned on, like, as this thing coming, I don't know what the fuck happened. I closed my eyes and I started seeing like these old school pipe screensavers and shit <laughs> from windows and I would open my eyes again and everything looked vivid and normal when I opened my eyes, but when I closed my eyes, these 3D pipes, and it was quiet, but it just looked just like the old window shit, moving fast. And I was like, damn, this shit's dope as fuck. I'm like, this shit must be kicking in. My homeboy leaves to get up from the table. Get like, he's like, ah, ah, he just yells. He gets up, he runs the fuck out of the restaurant, right? So he places his order though, before he do that. I place my order. I knew I wanted a steak, and I wanted some mashed potatoes, and I wanted something else. I asked him if they had mashed potatoes, and uh, they was like, we don't have mashed potatoes, we got baked potatoes. And when she said that, a feeling of disappointment came over me. And I had a flashback to when I was in the projects and my dad, I found out my dad smoked crack and he left me in the middle of the projects, right? The same projects my cousin died in. And I just start crying at the table. Like boo hoo crying. And she was like, what's, She's like, we got, we got baked potato. We got baked potato, I can bring you some butter and you can whip it up. And I was like, bring me some butter. Bring me a bunch of butter. And I'm like, boo-hoo crying. I'm not like tearing up. I'm like losing it, right? So she goes back, right, she leaves. I'm sitting there, I wipe my eyes. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck happened. This shit is crazy. And all of a sudden, like, I just started like coming on myself. Like, I'm talking about, I'm having a feeling, like, no liquid or nothing, but it's like a wet dream. We all had wet dreams before, but I'm, like, wide awake, so I don't know what the fuck going on. So I'm trying to lightweight feel for liquid by, like, shifting in my chair and shit. Just trying to feel that icky wet spot, but it ain't there. But I'm, like, I'm drained. You know how you come, you just drain? You know, ladies, how when fellas come, they ain't got no more energy left, and they like, shit. And I'm looking down, and all of a sudden, a big-ass basket of butter just hit the table. <laughs> And I was like, thank you. And I was like, man, I think I just came on myself. And everybody was like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, man, I just did, man. That shit is crazy. And I looked, and another beautiful chick walked by, and the shit just started happening all over again. And I was like, oh, shit. I started getting a sensation as if I was getting head under the table. So I'm there, I'm just moving, like. At one point, I grabbed the guy's shoulder next to me. He was mad, he was tense, cause he saw we don't know what the fuck's going on and why I'm acting like this, you know what I mean? And I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. And he's just tight and I'm like, I'm so sorry you can't feel what I'm feeling right now. I feel like I'm getting my dick sucked under the table. Oh shit, I'm coming. Ugh. 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 
because I'm a quiet comer, you know what I mean? You know how it is? I somebody make noise before they come, like, oh shit, oh shit, that shit about to go. And I was talking to whatever it was. Meanwhile, I'm live tweeting all this shit. Because I never felt this before. I wanted to take my few Twitter followers on this experience, not knowing that it's reaching corporate. <laughs> Fuck that I'm on a tour with a television network and everybody's watching and I'm just picking up followers. My phone's just going off. God, God. But I cannot read what the fuck's going on because when I look at my phone, the letters are just floating <laughs> off the phone. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to catch it and, like, and push it down on the phone. <laughs> So I'm misspelling shit. You can go back and look at this shit. This is November, like 2014 or some shit. And um, all I know, I was talking to a ghost that was sucking my dick. Because sometimes I like to talk shit. So I'm like, yeah, baby, like that. And I'm at the table and I would come. And then I would not, like after come, I'm so tired, I just want to eat. So I would grab my steak with my hand. And just, because I didn't have long, because I just kept coming. You know, it just kept coming. So I would just eat a little bit just to get enough strength for the next wave. <laughs> Cut fast forward, like we three, four hours in, we leaving the restaurant, and I wanted to apologize to the waiting staff for coming on myself, but not trying to tell them I'm about to come on myself. But when I would look into the most beautiful eyes I ever seen in that moment, it just brought back the lust feeling, and I just started to come again to where two dudes grabbed me and drove me out of the you know, restaurant. They just drove me out and it just started to sprinkle and the rain would hit me and it felt beautiful, you know what I mean? Just have a water splash on me. I'm coming down now, but all I know is they put me in the back of a tour bus. Uh, we were supposed to go to the strip club, which I was very excited about. <laughs> but somehow that shit ended, shit got fucked up. And I don't know what the fuck happened. All I know was me and this guy on the tour bus and he was like, I'll be back. And I realized like then, like, oh shit, they just locked me on the tour bus. <laughs> they nervous that I was about to do something, you know what I mean? And I understand, because I wanted to just pull my dick out sometimes and just finish what the fuck <laughs> was going on. But uh, I was just sitting there with a styrofoam steak. And I had recorded my legs moving at one point, because I filmed my legs, I didn't know what the fuck going on, but I felt like I was getting my dick sucked, so I'm just on the bus, just like, legs going crazy, like, ah, oh, shit. It's talking, right? They get back on the bus. They was like, hey, man, we finna walk to this club. I was like, let me go. I'll go with you. I feel a little better now. And we walked to this club. And I'm like, yo, where he at? The other guy. So apparently the other guy ran out of the restaurant. They had to take him back to his hotel room because he started throwing up. He tried to throw up the pill. And he was in his tub in his hotel threatening to cut his dick off and kill himself. So he was on watch, you know what I mean? <laughs> He had four people watching him. We get to this club and the music loud. You can feel every vibration as you pull up. You can just feel the energy of this club. You know what I mean? El Paso, Texas, which means the women are thick. You can see them as they go in, just ass everywhere. And I get up and then this violent, big ass military motherfucking security was like, I gotta search you. And I was like, I don't know if you wanna do that. And he was like, you can't get in this club if I don't search you. I was like, but sir, you don't understand. You know what I mean? I'm going through something right now. And he's like, I gotta search you. And I was like, all right, go ahead. And then he pat me down, and he had like these big ass hands, and it just felt like, you know what I mean? Somebody was just hitting you with a big ass board, and I'm sitting there trying to like, you know, whatever thought come through your mind when you try not to come, 
That's the thoughts I'm trying to, I'm thinking about my grandmother and shit. You know when you try to not come and you think about some shit like your grandmother is your mind, if you a pervert, always go to like that time you saw your grandmother titty and shit. So there's always a balance going on. It's like a fight, you know what I mean? So we get in this club. I find a corner to sit in until I come down off this thing. Because we on a tour, you know what I mean? So we got to leave. We got to leave and be in the next city in the morning. So by the time that all in and we get on the bus, all 11 of us, everybody's sleep. It's been a long night. Only person up is the two people that took the pill and the driver. The driver's driving the bus. The bus come to a stop. And he was like, what the fuck happened? And we still like a little bit high. And he was like, oh, Border Patrol. Border Patrol want to get on the bus. And we was like, oh, shit, the reason we took the pills was in Texas, they penalize you high for drugs. So we had to take them anyway just so we don't get pulled over. So my homeboy is in the bathroom. He tell me this, and I'm knocking on the bathroom door like, yo, come outside. And uh, he come outside, and he was like, what? I was like, Border Patrol here. He was like, oh, shit. And the back of the bus is like, the door is closed. So he goes for the door and try like to open the knob, but it ain't a knob, it's a sliding door. So he's just trying to push the door open as the fucking uh, Border Patrol get on the bus and was like, hey. And we both turned around like, uh, yes, officer. And we just looked guilty as fuck. And he was like, um, how y'all doing? He's like, we doing all right. Where y'all headed? We heading to Austin, Texas. I just point that way. <laughs> He's like, y'all going to Austin? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I just came on to see if y'all had any illegals on here. And we was like, illegal illegal what? He just looked at us like real suspicious. And it got real tense. And he was like, aliens. And we was like, oh, no, we ain't got no illegal aliens on here. And he's like, all right, all right, as you were. And then he got off the bus and we was like, shit. Thank God for the Mexicans, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then we made our way on to Austin, man. Finished the tour. It was a good tour. I never felt no shit like that before. I got lucky, though, you know. Thank you. Lock eyes from across the room. Down my drink while the rhythms boom. Take your hand and skip the names. No need here for the silly games. Make our way through the smoking crowd. The club is the sky and I'm on your cloud. Moving close as the lasers fly. Our bodies touch and the angels cry. Leave this place, go back to yours. Our lips first touch outside your doors. The whole night, what we've got in store. Whisper in my ear that you want some more. And I jizz in my pants. This really never happens, you can take my word. I won't apologize, that's just absurd. Mainly your fault for the way that you dance. And now I jizz in my pants. Don't tell your friends or I'll say you're a slut. Plus it's your fault you were rubbing my butt. I'm very sensitive some would say that's a plus. Now I'll go home and change. Yes I jizz in my pants. Yes I jizz in my pants. Brownies. I remember brownies. They're, uh, they're square and they're sweet and, well, they're brown, I guess. And uh, they come in a box. It's not right. They come in a 
box that can't be right. No, no, they do. They do. They come in a box, and then you mix it with wet stuff, and then you put it in the hot thing, the big hot thing, not the little one, the, not, the, not the microwave, the other one, the big one, the, uh, the oven. You put it in the oven, and then it gets hard, and you take it out, and that's when you make it into little squares, and then you eat them, and they're delicious. I'm going to make some brownies. I am 30 years old. I'm standing in the middle of my kitchen on the Lower East Side, and I've just decided that I'm going to make brownies to celebrate my three-month anniversary of having survived a stroke. Now, I've just remembered what brownies are, and this is what my life is like now. It's as though the library of my memory has caved in on itself, and it's my job to pick through the rubble to find the facts that I need to get through my day. So I've just remembered brownies, and every day I remember new things. And there's one memory that I wish I could shake, but I can't. It lives in me between my heart and my throat, and that's the memory of what happened three months ago when everything changed. I'm standing in front of my bathroom sink, and I'm scrubbing my fingernails with a small bristled brush. And I don't feel good. It's early in the morning, and I haven't had enough sleep. And I look in the mirror, and I'm kind of shocked at how bad I look. I'm a weird shade of pale, and it's like my face is uneven, and I'm blurry. So I drop the brush, and I turn on the faucet so that I can splash water onto my face. Or that's what I mean to do. But when I look down at my hands, they're stuck in that position, my right hand a claw over the left and the left still holding the brush. And it's like there's been a glitch in the matrix. So I think it again, drop the brush and nothing happens. And I try one more time insistently, drop the brush. And as I look down, it's like my understanding of the world expands and then contracts and explodes because I realize that I have lost control of my arms. And I don't know how to be a human being if my body doesn't do what I tell it to. And I think that I might be stuck here standing over my sink holding this brush for the rest of my life. So I think it one more time. Drop the brush. And nothing happens for a few seconds. And then my arm flails out spastically to the side and the brush clatters to the floor. And everything starts getting snowy around the edges and I realize that I'm going to pass out. And I feel the cold tile underneath my feet and I think I've got to get somewhere softer. So I walk to my bed, or I try to walk to my bed, but the left side of my body is paralyzed. <laughs> so I'm having a lot of trouble and I use the floor and the counter and my table and the wall and eventually I get to the bed and I flop over the bed and I reach for my phone, but my hand slides off the glass. And I realized that I don't have the motor function I need to call 911. <laughs> Did I mention that I was naked? Yeah, I had just gotten out of the shower when all of this happened. So I was laying over my bed completely naked and I realized that I live alone and I'm single and nobody is coming and I can't call for help and I'm dying one of those New York deaths. The kind that seemed like it would be impossible to die in this day and age, right? With everyone so connected. But I am, because I feel that I'm dying. I can feel it shutting down. And I imagine a firefighter, and I imagine their faces when they burst through my door after the neighbors call and complain about the smell two weeks later, and they find my bloated, naked, rat-eaten body with my hand two inches from the phone. 
And I think about that, and it, it seems so unfair because that wasn't how I meant to go. But everything about this seems unfair because I didn't do any of the things that I wanted to do with my life. I didn't make good art, nothing that I was really proud of. And I didn't travel. I never saw anything because it was too uncomfortable for me to go someplace where I didn't speak the language. I never got married. I mean, I don't even want to get married. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing you think about when you're dying. And you do know that you're dying. It's very, very clear. You can feel it shutting down. Like you're in a giant theater and the lights are shutting off from the back of the room. And soon you'll be sitting in the dark, but they're just going, boom, boom. And you know that soon you're going to be in pitch black and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. And that realization makes me gasp. <gasps> and then I realize something. I realize that I'm still breathing. And if I'm breathing, I'm not dead. So if I don't want to die, all I have to do is keep breathing. And I push all of the thoughts of rats and firefighters out of my head. And that is what I concentrate all of my energy on. Single-minded, one focus. I breathe in. And then I breathe out. And then I do it again. I breathe in. And then I breathe out. And this goes on for some time. And about two hours later, I realize that I can move my hands. And then I realize that I can move my feet and that I can stand up. So I go to my doctor. I should have called an ambulance, but I just acquired a brain injury and I wasn't thinking very clearly. So I, I go to my doctor, even though I don't really understand how taxi cabs work, I know that I have to get into the yellow car and they will take me somewhere, but I don't know why he's yelling at me and I don't know why he's taken my purse and taken the green things out of it and thrown the purse back at me and told me to get out of the car. But I grab my purse and I get out of the car and I go into the doctor's office and it is white and clean and organized and I think that she will tell me what is wrong. She will be able to fix this. And I stand in front of the doctor and there are tears streaming down my face and I'm listing slightly side to side and I can't remember my middle name but I can remember the name of the current president and she tells me that I'm having a panic attack and gives me a clonopin and she sends me home. So I go back to my house and I take the clonopin and I hope with everything in my being that when I wake up in a couple of hours, this will all seem like a bad dream. But I don't wake up in a couple of hours. I'm in and out of consciousness and pain and disorientation. And when I finally stumble from my bed consciously five days later, I go to the bathroom and on my way there I notice that there's a menu on my fridge written in Chinese. And I think that's weird. And even as I'm thinking it, I see English language letters appearing from it. There's an A and there's a C. And I realize that the menu isn't in Chinese, it's in English. I just can't read. So after that, there are a lot of doctors and a lot of needles and machines that zap me and machines that shudder from side to side. And after three months, we do know some things. We know that I've had a stroke in the prefrontal cortex of my brain, possibly a series of strokes, what they call a shower of embolism, which is a pretty fucking festive term for something that might kill you if you ask me. <laughs> we know that there's a big dead spot in my brain the size of a peanut M&M, but like a big peanut M&M, like one of those mutant ones that has two peanuts in it. <laughs> yeah, it's like that size. And we know that my ability to function in my day-to-day -day life has been severely diminished. I've lost most of the function in my left hand and my left foot. 
I don't understand important concepts like time. And my short-term memory is so bad that if you ask me a question, I'll be able to reply to it, but I might not remember what your question was by the time I'm done talking. All of that is troubling, but what's more troubling is the things that we don't know. We don't know what causes a stroke, and we don't know if I'm going to have another one. Three months seems like a long time without a diagnosis, but it actually takes us about 18 months to figure out that I have a blood clotting disorder that probably led to the stroke. And while we're three months out from the stroke, no one can tell me what caused it, and no one can tell me with any certainty whether or not I'll have another one. So at this point, I'm celebrating days and weeks and months because I'm not sure if I have years. And for this three-month anniversary, I've decided to make these brownies. And God damn it, I'm gonna do it. Even though I'm not really supposed to be making brownies. After an incident a few months ago, when I reached out and grabbed a hot pan with my bare hand because I didn't understand that it would hurt me, my family and friends have decided that possibly I shouldn't cook until we've got the brain thing a little bit more under control. So I don't tell anyone that I'm making brownies. And it's partly because I don't want people to tell me that I can't, but I also don't want them to know if I fail. And I recognize that there is a chance that I will fail. So I start for the first and the 50th time to make brownies. And there is so much I love about making brownies. I love the puff of powder that rises when you upend the mix into a bowl. And I love the white plastic packet of factory caramel goo. And I love the two perfect eggs that I hold in my hand for just a second before cracking them. I love the sandy taste of the batter on my tongue, the badness of eating something raw. And I love what the brownies show me that I can do. When I bend over with a paper towel to wipe up a drip of batter that's fallen on the floor, it is a miracle because a month ago I dropped a 500 bottle of Tylenol on the floor and I just sat down in the middle of the mess and cried because I knew that there was no way I could pick up all those pills. And I love that I'm learning how to work with this brain, that I know that my sense of time is pretty iffy, so I set three different timers and I put them all around my house to make sure that I don't accidentally cook the brownies for 25 hours instead of 25 minutes and burn the whole place down. And I take an oven mitt and I put it on top of my stove so that I'll remember that when I need to take the brownies out of the oven, I'll be able to do that. And I love that while the brownies are cooking, I can tell the difference between the sickly sweet egg smell of something raw and that dry cooked smell, that dry baked smell of something that's done. And even though I didn't know what brownies were this morning, I know that they're done while I'm in the other room. There's this back burner part of my brain that still has everything in there and it feels so good. And when I take the brownies out of the oven, I do not burn myself. And I look at them and they are exactly the size and the shape that they're meant to be and I let them cool, and I cut out a perfect square, and I bring it to my mouth, and I take a bite, and they are perfect. They are exactly what I meant to do. And there is so much I can't do three months after my stroke. I can't ride the subway, or read a map, or order a sandwich, because I don't know what a pickle is. <laughs> There is so much I can do, but I have done this one thing. And I look down at this beautiful brownie with a crescent shape from my teeth carved out of it, and I realize that for the first time since I had the stroke, 
I believe that maybe someday everything might be okay. And I think about those eggs the way that I hesitated before cracking them, but then I did, I broke them, and they became something new, part of something whole, something different, not better or worse, but something different. And they were still useful and important, and it was okay that they were broken, and there's a feeling for it, and I can feel it rising in me, and I don't know what the feeling is that I have from making these brownies, and I can't remember the word, but I realized that today, I made something that was whole and perfect, even if I'm not, and suddenly, the word comes to me, and it's exactly the right word, and I know what it is, and I know that there are gonna be hard days ahead, but here today, I did just the thing that I meant to do, and I hold the word close to me, and I know that I've got this one back, and that I'm gonna carry it through the rest of the hard days, and the brownies are perfect, and the word is hope. is risk that was jezebel express we just heard and before that a little interstitial by the lonely island now in a little bit we're going to hear an epic 44 minute long story by jill chenault we normally don't put really long stories on the best of compilations but in jill's case i just i just couldn't resist before Jill, though, we're going to hear from Jamie Brickhouse, who shared a wonderful story called Let Me Let You Go at our Risk Live show that we do once a month at Caveat in New York City. But before all that, have you bought the Risk book yet? And did you know there's a song about it? Have you bought the Risk book yet? If you have, buy more for friends. There are all new versions of classic stories and six never heard before elsewhere. There's a bunch of famous people in a safe one. And Q&A with all the offers. The Risk book has stories that are funny and scary and lovely and totally fucked the perfect gift to give to friends. And it's getting all kinds of raves on audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Where books are sold or theriskbook.com. Buy the Risk I met my first boyfriend in first grade. I was a precocious child. His name was Eric Munson, and we met during PE class, the way most budding homosexuals meet, far on the sidelines of the playing ground. And it was the 1970s, and we were both in Mrs. Chambers' class, 
in little old, flat as a flitter, hot and steamy, oil refinery oasis, cancer capital, Beaumont, Texas. Now, while the other boys played a savage game of dodgeball, you know, that barbaric game where they pummel each other with those big red rubber balls? I mean, guys are cruel enough as it is. Why encourage them? But Eric and I sat atop the monkey bars, and we discussed our very favorite episodes of Bewitched. (laughs) Now, for those of you not in the know, Bewitched was that 1960s sitcom about a beautiful blonde witch named Samantha, married to a mortal, Darren, and her meddlesome drag queen of a mother, Endora. (laughs) Ah, Endora. With her flaming red hair teased up into giant sausage curls and her long, flowy, sky-blue chiffon gowns that matched her sky-blue eyeshadow, she was eye candy to a couple of boys like Eric and me. And Eric was eye candy to me. I mean, when we met on the playground, he said to me, I sure do like your pretty red hair. And I said, I like your pretty blue eyes. His eyes were the color of the aquamarine ring that Mrs. Chambers wore. And he had blonde hair, and it was so light, it was almost white. And they called boys with hair that color toeheads, which I thought was an ugly name for something so beautiful. And he even had little wisps of it on his forearms like a man. Now, I didn't know the term turned on in those days, but I think I was turned on by those little wisps of hair. So pretty soon, Eric and I were playing Bewitched on a regular basis. But in our version, Darren didn't exist. (laughs) Samantha and Endora galloped across Europe using their powers freely. Now, I played Samantha. Eric was so homosexually advanced, he played Endora. He could perfectly mimic her drag queen gestures as he'd cast spells with a tornado of whirling arms and sucked-in cheeks and arched eyebrows. (laughs) Eric could always outdo me on the sissy fabulous scale. Now, Mrs. Chambers was as equally enamored of me and my pretty red hair as Eric was, and my feelings for her were mutual. I mean, she had a big personality and a bubble of brunette hair and bright makeup that was punctuated by frosted pink lips. Three times a day, she would pull an amethyst glass atomizer from her desk drawer and spray, 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 spray herself with what I imagined was Chanel number no. five. She was like a movie star to me, and she loved teaching, and she loved me. Jamie, you're my star pupil. I see a big future for you. And she loved fostering creativity in the classroom, especially in the afternoons during coloring and writing time. And it was during those times that Eric would write his love poems for me on manila paper with Crayolas. Roses are red, violets are blue, your red hair is pretty, and so are you. I know, very sweet. And I was really proud of that, and I showed it. To Mrs. Chambers, I mean, in my innocence, I didn't think there was anything to be ashamed of. I just thought it was what it was, which was one person displaying their affection for another. And when I showed it to her, she didn't gush and say, oh, Jamie, isn't that wonderful? 
like she did about all the creations I showed her. Instead, she just kind of cocked her head to the side and said, well, now, isn't that something? Now, Eric and I played after school together at each other's houses and on the weekends, but in the evenings, almost every evening, we had long phone conversations. And we took cues from how our mothers spoke on the phone. So I would cradle the receiver between my ear and my shoulder and mock file my nails, (laughs) or I'd lethargically twirl the long, squiggly cord like a jump rope. And we'd have conversations like this. Eric would say, now, honey, I'm not going to be at Bridge Circle tomorrow. I'm getting my hair done. So don't you let those girls talk ugly about me while I'm not there. (laughs) Oh, honey, I would say, I've got your back. And I would end all of the conversations the exact same way. Well, let me let you go. (laughs) Which is how my mother ended her phone conversations. When it was really she who wanted to be let go. It's the Southern way of dropping someone. So after first grade, Eric and I, we no longer had the same teachers into second and third grade, but we remained best friends, best girlfriends. And I also remained really close with Mrs. Chambers, kind of besties with her too. And we had the same birthday. And I even got to spend it with her and her family in her mansion that she lived out in the country with. And I started hanging out after school if I wasn't playing with Eric and her classroom as her special little helper. I loved those afternoons because she would take me into her confidence and give me the lowdown and the gossip of what was going on with her current crop of students. Travis Boudreau can't seem to concentrate. He's what they call hyperactive. But now Kathleen Winslow is one of my star pupils. Very creative, just like you were. I loved it. I loved being talked to like an adult I told you I was a precocious child, and even my kindergarten teacher had noted it in my report card. She said, Jamie seems to favor the company of adults over children his own age. And I was like, well, duh. I mean, you know, adults know things. (laughs) So on one of those after-school afternoons, Mrs. Chambers calls me over to her desk. Jamie, I want to have a little talk with you. I loved little talks with big people. I ran over to her desk, and I looked up at her. Jamie, do you know the word sissy? I looked at her, and her head was cocked like that time I showed her one of Eric's love poems. Jamie, do you know what a sissy is? And my eyes focused in on her frosted pink lips as she said, sissy. Uh, I think so. I don't know if I knew or if I intuitively knew, but I felt like I was in trouble. Well, Eric might be one. And the other boys might think you're one, too, if you hang around him too much. Maybe you should take a little break from him for a while. Then she winked and ruffled my red hair. Just something to think about. I don't know how much I thought about it, but after that conversation... Every time Eric came over to play, I kept making up lame excuses why I couldn't. And I suppose at that time, I thought that sissy meant being too girly. And I hadn't been called a sissy, but I had a problem with my name because the boys were constantly making fun of me, saying, why do you have a girl's name? 
Jamie's a girl's name. And then worse, they started calling me Jamie Summers, which was the name of the bionic woman, which was a hit TV show at that time. And I was not Jamie Summers. By that point, I was Jill from Charlie's Angels, the Farrah Fawcett role. (laughs) But that was my little secret. And after that conversation with Mrs. Chambers, I thought, maybe if I hang around him, it may not be my little secret anymore. And I thought I had to choose between her and him. And I thought I needed the validation and adult friendship that I had with her. And I remember the last time I saw Eric. He was standing on my front porch, and I had given him yet another lame excuse for why I couldn't play. I think I said something like I was going to be playing with the boys down the street, uh, Gunsmoke, this Western TV show, and we both knew that was a fairy tale. (laughs) This time, he didn't protest. He just said, okay. And his aqua blue eyes were moist. To break the awkward moment, I said the only thing I could think of to say. Well, let me let you go. He got on his bike and he pedaled away. Not long after that, my family moved across town to a new house, and so I changed school districts. So I didn't see Eric anymore or Mrs. Chambers. By the time I hit junior high, I had been called sissy many times, and a lot worse, and Eric was nowhere near me when it happened. But one summer in junior high, I had an epiphany. Mrs. Chambers was right. Eric is a sissy. And you know what? So am I. And I got on my bike and I rode across town to his house, determined to resume our game of bewitched, but maybe I'd be Darren to his Samantha. I rang the doorbell. A strange man answered. His father? Is Eric home? Who? Eric Munson? Oh, the Munsons. No, they moved to Oklahoma years ago. I was too late. So I grew up, and I shook the dust from my shoes from that oil refinery town in Texas, and I came to New York City to lead my own sissy fabulous life. Thank you very much. Which for me meant a lot of alcohol and drugs. And it was pretty fun for a long time. And, you know, I'd close down the bars in Chelsea and then go to the after-hours clubs and do cocaine. And then I'd wake up in the morning with strangers whose names I didn't know. And then I started waking up in towns whose names I didn't know, like Patterson, New Jersey. (laughs) But after a while, the fabulousness sunk to an alcoholic depression. And I bottomed out on a suicide attempt, an overdose of pills. And after I got sober, I started wondering about Eric a lot. I mean, I'd never forgotten him. I don't know that he was the love of my life, the man that got away, probably more like the best girlfriend who got away. And about four years ago, I tried to find him on Facebook, and I found an Eric Munson that seemed like it was a match, and I sent him a message. And I knew that when he got it, He was going to respond immediately and say, is this Jamie? Jamie Brickhouse from Mrs. Chambers' class? Call me. And I'd call him. And we'd have one of those long phone conversations like we used to have when we were kids. And I'd say, Eric, how are you? Where are you? What have you been up to? 
And he'd say, girl, I'm fabulous. I'm living in Philadelphia and I'm a drag queen and no one can do shares if I could turn back time better than I can. And I would say, I knew that you found a way to channel your talent for mimicking Endora into a fabulous drag queen career. And then I would say, Eric, I'm sorry for letting Mrs. Chambers nip our friendship just as it was flowering. And he'd say, oh, honey, don't worry about it. We were just kids, and she was just a small-town cunt. (laughs) But the conversation never happened. I never got a response. And then I recently connected with another classmate from Mrs. Chambers' class who had kept in touch with Eric. And for a minute there, I didn't know who I was talking to because he was a she in first grade. So there must have been something in the waters in that class, or maybe Mrs. Chambers was fostering a creativity she never imagined. <laughs> so I asked him, you know, what about Eric? Where, where's Eric? Why, how is he? And he said, well, he, um, he never made it far from small towns in Oklahoma and Texas and He had some serious problems with alcohol and drugs. I said, just like me. I said, I don't know why, but I kind of felt like that might be the case. Wait, had? Where is he now? And my friend said, well, Eric killed himself about four years ago. He ended up in a small redneck town, 30 minutes from Beaumont. Once again, I was too late. And I couldn't help but wondering, would it have turned out any differently if I had remained his friend back in elementary school? If I had gotten to his house sooner before he moved away to Oklahoma? If I had reached out to him on Facebook maybe a year earlier? I'll never know. And I'll never get to tell him that I'm sorry for the last words I said to him so many years ago. Well, let me let you go. Thank you. You know, I've often wondered why I never got married. I mean, at this point in life, a lot of my peers, my friends, they're married the first time, maybe even the second time. They've got kids, but not me. I kind of think it might be because I've always carried myself like I'm not going to put up with any bullshit. Maybe that kind of repels most men because they know there might be some bullshit, but I'm just not going to tolerate it. I'm going to cut them off at the knees. And I've often wondered if that's wrong. And if so, what's wrong with me? Can I fix it? But then I think about the women in my family, my mother, her sisters, the stories that I've heard about my grandmother, my great aunts. Nobody puts up with any bullshit. Nobody. And it goes back generations. So maybe it's genetic and I just can't help it. I don't know. When I was a kid, We spent a lot of time at my great-grandma Buff's house. Now, she was dead before I was born, but I heard stories about her. 
and I heard that Buff was nobody to be trifled with. But anything big that happened, graduation, a wedding, a funeral, we would spend that holiday or that celebration would take place at her house in Pontiac. The address was 146 Jackson Street. We just called it 146. Now, great-grandma Buff passed the house down to her daughter, Corinne. The house was a nice house. It was a modest house, but it was nice. The only thing is, I never sat at the big table with my mother and my father and my aunts, and I just never made it to the big table. And sometimes we used to joke about how somebody was going to have to die before we could get to the big table. But it was nothing to sneeze at. You couldn't complain about being at a little table because we had real cloth tablecloths. We had Waterford Crystal little glasses, and the salt and pepper shakers were Waterford Crystal. We had real silverware, so you really couldn't complain. But the big table held a certain mystique because that's where grown folks did their talking. Well, after dinner and after the table had been cleared, we would quite often try to make our way over to the big table. Gradually, after maybe a little bit of pound cake, maybe a little bit of wine, if it was Christmas time, a little eggnog, which would set you on your ass if you had more than one cup. We would ask my mom and my Aunt Oyella, tell us the story about the crazy man from Mississippi. Every family gathering, we would ask to hear this story. And the story always began the same way. Albert Roberts was black as coal and mean as a snake. And we would just be enraptured. So Albert Roberts black as coal, mean as a snake, was the letter writer for Coffeeville, Mississippi. The whole town, black people and white people. So that means that anybody who had anything to be written for them or read to them had to go to him for help because he was the most literate man in town. And that was a source of great pride for him. And so back in the late 1800s was when he was a grown man, a show enough grown man. Now, he got a little full of himself. We heard that he always had his chest puffed up a little bit. Now, when he was a young man, he married my great-grandmother, Buff. And they started having babies almost right away. And when they started having babies, he decided that that would be a good time to start whooping her ass on a regular basis. As the kids got older, he started whooping them too. But of all the kids they had, Corinne, Leonidas, Billy Goat, at least that's what we called her, Great Aunt Billy Goat, all of them. The one that he did not whoop was Mildred. She was the youngest. And the story goes that when he was whooping all the other kids one day and he raised his hand to hit little Mildred, she put her hands on her little hips and said, you better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. And he never did. Now, eventually, Buff got sick of all of this. And even though she did not have a job, she decided that she was going to get a hold of her shotgun and invite her husband to leave the house, which he did promptly. He went to live with his sister further in the Mississippi Delta. But he did stay in touch with her. He was a letter writer, so he wrote letters to her. But the letters were not nice letters. They were threatening letters. Sometimes he would say things like, I shall gently clasp my fingers about your throat and slowly squeeze the life from you. He wrote hate mail to his children, his children. There was one time when somebody, I guess it was his second daughter, I'm not sure, it might have been Corinne, 
he had sent some shoes for her birthday and he didn't feel that she was prompt enough in thanking him. And she didn't write a thank you note. And so he wrote her a letter saying, just act like I'm dead, just like your mother has taught you and act like you don't even know who I am. Well, she was maybe six years old at the time. He wrote these hate letters throughout their lives. And when the Great Migration North began for black folks, the older kids moved up north first. He still wrote hate letters to them. He didn't really even know them that well anymore. Eventually, Buff moved north too. And by then, her youngest, Mildred, was in high school. Well, there came a time when Albert, when all of the money that he had saved and invested in the stock market was gone. Here's a man who has done everything that the laws of America say to do. He stayed out of trouble. He didn't drink. He didn't womanize. He saved his money. He invested in the stock market. And now he has lost everything. So he took the train up north to Pontiac to 146 Jackson Street to ask for money from his grown kids and from his wife. Now, he had abused everybody who was in that house at that point. But he said, I am still your father and you still have to help me. Well, Buff, Mildred, all of them, all of his kids, Bop, who was his second oldest, they said, no, we don't have to do anything for you. You're on your own. Well, he started acting a fool and he kicked up so much sand that eventually they called his son-in-law, Big Scott. Now, Big Scott was an Oakland County Sheriff's deputy. So Big Scott had a pistol and he came over there to confront his father-in-law and to tell his father-in-law, you got to stop acting a fool and leave this house because I can take you to jail. Albert Roberts, black as coal, mean as a snake, couldn't get himself under control for the life of him. Or maybe he didn't want to because he was proud. And so Big Scott hauled his ass off to jail. This is in Oakland County. Oakland County is unfriendly to black folks now. So you know if they got an outside Negro making trouble in their little vicinity, they were happy to lock his black ass up. So he was locked up for 30 days. He had never been locked up before. He got out without anybody in the family finding out. Now the judge had told him, when we release you, you get on the next thing smoking that's going to take you back to Mississippi because we don't want you up here. But he went straight back to 146. He waited until it got dark and he hid in the shed behind the house. When it got dark, he took off his shoes. He crept over to that house, went in through a basement window, grabbed an axe from the basement and went upstairs to kill everybody in the house. Specifically, he wanted to kill Buff because he blamed her for everything bad that had ever happened to him. Now, the story always was that the only people in the house were Buff, her daughter Bop, and Bop's two children who were a year old and three years old. And they were sleeping in their crib. So he crept up those stairs, but by the time he got up there, Buff had realized that somebody was in the house. And she told her daughter, Bop, who was in the room with her little kids, you put this dresser drawer up against this door. I'm going to jump out the window and go get help. So she jumped out the second floor window and went door to door in her nightclothes, which was quite scandalous back then. A lady didn't go outside in her nightclothes under any circumstances. Now, when they told us the story, they were always very specific in saying 
that the youngest girl, who supposedly was the meanest, the one that had told him, don't you ever hit me, you black son of a bitch, Mildred, that Mildred was in Chicago visiting Cousin Susie. Don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. Now, I thought that was her name until I was grown. But they always said, don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie whenever they said her name. Well, it's a good thing that she was there because she was so mean that she might have tried to fight back and she might have gotten hurt by Albert Roberts when he had that axe because she didn't have enough sense and couldn't be calm enough to confront him without trying to fight him. So it's a good thing that she was in Chicago with Cousin Susie. Don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. So eventually, Buff got one of the neighbors to let her in. This lady's name was Nirvana. Nerve. Nirvana and her husband had a telephone. Not everybody had one then, but Nerve had one. So when Buff and Nerve ran back to 146, Nerve's husband called the police. And by the time the police got there, Albert Roberts had managed to get into the room where my great aunt Bob had barricaded herself with her two babies, Reva and Karen, and he had bludgeoned all three of them with that axe. He broke Reva's back. He fractured Karen's skull. He had split Bop's head open with that axe, too. And the story goes, he realized what he had done, the horror of it, and he stabbed himself in the chest repeatedly in the backyard of 146. Now, for me, when I was a kid, this was like a ghost story. It was something that I would ask my mother to tell us about just because I was thrilled at being at the big table without being sent away. But one day when I was about 15, I said to my mother, wait a minute, what did you say his name was? And my mother said, you hear it every time we tell the story. Albert Roberts, black as coal, mean as a snake. I said, but wait a minute, isn't Aunt Mildred's last name Roberts? And my mother said, well, yeah, who the hell did you think I've been talking about? This was my grandfather. This was your great-grandfather. What is wrong with you? I was shocked. I could not believe that this happened, first of all. And when my mom was telling us the story, some of the people that were in the story were sitting right there with us and never said a word, never batted an eye. And our family had kept living in that house and treating it as the very hub of everything involved in our family. So I asked my mother, well, why would they stay in that house? Why are we here now? Why would your grandmother stay in the house after something that terrible happened? My mother said to me, well, my grandmother said to me once that she had cleaned too many white folks' toilets to let some crazy nigga run her out of her house. And then my mother ate a little bit more pound cake and had a little bit more ice cream. Now, Aunt Reva and Aunt Karen and their mother, my great-aunt Bob, all survived that incident. The only one that ended up dead was Albert Roberts himself. I wondered if a person could really stab himself to death. But I was a teenager, so I didn't really question it. But I went on to become a defense attorney, and I did a lot of murder cases. And I had to learn about things like how much force it takes to pierce a person's sternum, particularly the sternum of a grown-ass man. And how quite often after the first stab wound, the body might not bleed as much with the subsequent stab wounds because they start to go into shock. And I wondered, can somebody stab themselves in the chest repeatedly like they had always said? So one day, 
I was talking to my mother and I just casually said, you know how Albert Roberts died in the backyard. I've been wondering, do you really think that he stabbed himself to death? I mean, don't you think that maybe when Nerve and Buff got back to that house and saw that he had tried to take out everybody else in the house, that maybe they did something to him? And my mother, who's usually just as sweet as pie, she said to me, don't you ever ask me that again. And I got scared. And I did not ask her that again for many, many years. Well, by then, I was a young adult. I was dating seriously and thinking, maybe I should consider getting married one day. But I was also learning that being a tough woman was not always attractive to men. That upset me because I didn't know how to be anything else. I could be soft and gentle and stroke a fevered brow and comfort you when you're distraught. But if I love you and someone does something to you, I'm coming after them. It's just that simple. You can go with me. You can stay home. But I'm going to fuck them up. And that was kind of how all of us viewed things that way. Even if we didn't act on it, we were always willing. And we always knew how to take care of ourselves physically. My mama had a pearl-handled pistol in her dresser drawer for most of my life. So her mother knew how to shoot and was willing to shoot somebody who came in that house. So that's just kind of how we are. And I realized that that could be a hindrance when it came to modern-day dating the knowledge of how to kill someone, the willingness to fight someone, it's not always considered a good attribute in someone that a man is considering marrying. Now, no matter what physical damage Albert Roberts did that night, he did not break the spirit of anybody in that house. Those women, his wife Buff, her granddaughters Reva and Karen, her daughter Bop, everybody went on to live exceptional lives. The men that the women of my mom's generation married, knew coming in that these were some tough old ladies. And I saw how they deferred to these old ladies with blue hair with every major decision that had to be made when the family was together. They gave orders like nobody's business, like drill sergeants. You go get this table. You go get such and so. Why did you park your car in the driveway and block so-and-so in? You know she's going to have to leave early to go to the meeting at church. They ran things. One of the things that Aunt Mildred did She was the first black female pharmacist in the state of Michigan, and she opened her own store. Now, this was at a time when black women were not going to pharmacy school, but she would take a lot of the money that she made and pay for the tuition of little black kids in the neighborhood who wanted to go to college, whose families didn't have money. And they were big on going to school. When I went to college, I was shocked that so many of my friends were the first members of their families to go to college. My Aunt Reva, the one whose back had been broken when she was hit with that axe, she went on and got her undergrad degree at Juilliard and her master's degree at Howard. Her sister, whose skull was fractured with that axe, had her master's degree in elementary education and went on to become a school principal. These women, not only did they go to college, it was assumed always that they were going to go to college, that they would not bring home average grades under any circumstances. My mother graduated high school with a four-point GPA when she was 15 years old. She went on to go to Wayne State University in Detroit as a little kid, basically, who still had pigtails. She wasn't allowed to straighten her hair with a hot comb yet because she was only 15 when she graduated and became a freshman in college. Now, these women... They can bake some pies and cakes that will make you roll on the floor and giggle. And they could teach you all of these womanly arts and would encourage you 
to show your attraction to the man that you love. Don't be shy about it. I was embarrassed at times at the way my Aunt Old Yella would act with her husband and the way that my mother acts with my father still. They're in their 80s, and I still have to sometimes remind them, look, you can't be rubbing on each other when we're in the room. Just wait until we leave the room. On the other hand, those same women will not hesitate to punch somebody in the face if they do something to someone that they love. When my sixth grade elementary school teacher put his hands on me, he put his hands on me in a hostile fashion and shook me when I was 11 years old, he came to the house for parent-teacher conference. And when he came to our house, my mother was laying for him. My father had gone on to work and said, I know you can handle this. I'll see you when I get home. Please don't hurt him. And they laughed about it. But when the teacher showed up, I was hiding upstairs and kind of peeking downstairs. They went about the business of carrying on my parent-teacher conference and talked about my grades and everything and how well I was doing academically. And then my mother asked him, are you finished? And he said, yes. And my mother, she never raised her voice. She said, now, my child told me that you put your hands on her. And I told her that you will never ever again put your hands on her for any reason. Do you understand me? And he smiled and nodded, but didn't say anything. Well, she didn't move. She said, I asked you a question. Do you understand me? Did you hear what I said to you? And he said, yes. And she did that one eyebrow thing, raised an eyebrow. And he then said, yes, ma'am. Now, this is a white man in our house. And my mother is threatening him implicitly. And I loved it. But that's the women in my family. Don't bother anybody. Don't be mean or unfair to anybody that we love because we will come for you. And that's just how I am. So maybe that's why I'm not married, never have been, might not ever be. Somebody once told me, you don't look like you need a man. Well, hell, I was raised to not need a man. My great-grandmother, Buff, worked in private family, not as a maid. In private family, you work for one family, preferably a respectable family. Your status in the black community is determined by the status of your white people. In my family, they worked for respectable white folks, and you work for that one family as long as you can. Sometimes you work in private family for generations. Your mother worked for this family. Now you work for that family. My mother said that great-grandma Buff would tell my mother and her sisters and her one brother, you're going to get your education so you don't have to do what I'm doing. And you won't ever have to depend on any man for anything. You're going to learn to do for yourself and make your own decisions. And if for some reason you can't get an education, not don't want to, can't, because don't want to is not an option. Well, then you go to Kalamazoo or Berrien Springs and you pick berries. That was a seasonal migrant job that some folks had that they didn't particularly like, but it beat the hell out of working in white folks' houses. Because, she said, if you work in white folks' houses, she will never be satisfied with anything you do, and you'll spend most of your time running from him. So you get your education so you do not have to deal with that. We were also pushed to learn things like anything artsy, because at family gatherings we were supposed to be able to recite a poem or play an instrument, or sing a song. And we're also supposed to be able to discuss politics and world events. We are not ever to end a sentence with a preposition. We weren't allowed to say ain't, but, booty, nigga. We weren't allowed to say any of that as children. That was low. We were above that. We were Sadidi Negroes, and we still are Sadidi Negroes. 
Another thing that has plagued me during my quest to find true and long-lasting love is my competitiveness, which I think I get from my mother. When I was a little kid, if my mom was teaching me how to play anything, whether it was jacks or gin rummy or scrabble, she would explain the rules. Then she would say, do you want to practice? Maybe we practice a little bit. And she'd offer pointers. And then when she thought I was ready, she would ask me, are you ready to play now? And if I said yes, she would commence to whoop my ass at whatever it was. It didn't matter. She was going to beat me until I could beat her. And I remember my Aunt Samantha and Aunt Oyella would say, Cookie, why don't you just let her win? Just let her win once. I mean, she's just a little kid. And my mother would say, no, I'm not going to let her win because life is not going to let her win. She has to win by competing and winning on her own. When she walks out that door, she's going to walk out into a world of people that don't really care about her and ain't going to let her win. So it's best for her to learn that now and learn how to fight now if she wants to win. So when I was in high school, there was this guy, Kevin Brown, at my high school, who was one of the finest boys in town. And he was so fine back then that I bet you he's still fine. I bet time has not done anything to damp down his fineness. Well, he played tennis and I played tennis. I thought, well, if I get him to play tennis with me, maybe if he's alone with me, he'll start to kind of like me too and he'll ask me out. So we went to our local park and we were playing tennis and I was beating him because that's what I was raised to do. And he started to get frustrated and I had a good serve so I could ace him. He got frustrated and he threw his racket at me. He said it was an accident, but that racket came flying over the net in my direction and I was a little hot under the collar. And at that point, I decided I'm just going to have to beat his ass. I'm not just going to win. I'm going to crush him. And I did. And by the time I finished crushing him, I didn't care if he asked me out or not. I thought he threw a tennis racket at me. In fact, I was going to tell everybody how bad I beat him. And I did. But he never did ask me out. And I think that might have had something to do with it. I think that my willingness to mix it up a little bit has been a detriment not only to dating, but even, I mean, I was engaged once for about 15 minutes. And on one of the visits that we made to visit my family, my family had a little dog named Muffin who was just cute. She looked just like Tramp in Lady and the Tramp. He kicked Muffin. And that's why I was only engaged for 15 minutes because I took the ring off on the spot and I made it clear to him, that's not going to happen because if you will kick this cute little dog and we have kids together, you might kick one of my children. And if you kick one of my children, I'm going to have to kill you. So it's best for all involved if we go our separate ways. So that was the only time I came close to getting married. (laughs) Very sad. So when I was in my 30s and I was really doing criminal law in Detroit, I had to learn a lot about the human body and what it takes to kill a human being and things about you know how quickly a person is likely to lose consciousness after they bleed from a certain part of their body, like an aorta or something like that. And so I decided that I was going to go up to the county clerk's office and pull Albert Roberts' death certificate. I read it, and it didn't say anything about stabbing oneself or being stabbed. In the space marked cause of death, it said suicide by cutting throat with razor. Now, to me, that meant that he didn't really stab himself like everybody had said. We know that much is wrong. That part of the story that I had been told over and over and over again was incorrect. 
But beyond that, the fact that his throat was slit with a razor reminded me of this joke. And if there are any black folks out there, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about before I say it. Legend goes that a black lady from the South, particularly from Mississippi, will cut you in a heartbeat. We're not going to shoot you. We're not going to hit you over the head with a frying pan. We're going to cut you. My friends and I had always joked about that. We would be out to dinner and maybe somebody would take something off of someone else's plate without permission. And the other person would say, be careful, I'm going to cut you. Well, when I was in law school, there was this woman named Donna. She was my best friend in law school. And she was, her family was from Mississippi. And she came to visit my family in the small town of Lansing, Michigan. We're getting ready to go to the little tiny Lansing Mall. We get out to the car and Donna snaps her fingers and says, wait a minute, I got to go back. I forgot my razor. And my mother, who had walked us to the door, said, oh, no, no, honey, don't worry about it. It'll be safe here. I'm going to keep it here for you. You'll be just fine. I laughed about that when I saw that Albert Roberts throat was slit with a razor because it reminded me of Donna and all the joking over the years and how it was kind of a well-known assertion that black ladies from Mississippi might have a razor in their stocking or in their boot or even in their hat and they might cut you. So when I saw this detail in the death certificate, I became even more suspicious about the truth of the story that we had always been told by Aunt Oyella and my mother. So when I talked to my mother, I decided I was going to ask her about it. And by then, some things had changed since the last time I'd asked her about it, and she told me not to ever again. By this time, my niece was born, and my mother so loved my niece from the very start, and so did I. I was astounded at how immediate that attachment was and how willing all of us were to make any sacrifice necessary for the well-being of this little girl. So I asked my mother, I said, now, given how much you love this baby, don't you think that maybe your grandmother felt the same way about Aunt Reva and Aunt Karen? And maybe when she saw how Albert Roberts had hurt them, she might have even thought they were dead, that maybe she would become so enraged that she did him in? and slit his throat with a razor. And my mother said, well, no. I only knew my grandmother's being a nice, sweet woman. I can't imagine her doing that. I just don't think she would do such a thing. And I said, but now that you have this grandbaby, don't you think that you would become enraged if somebody did something to her, hit her with an axe? I mean, I thought you were going to kill her father when he simply left her in a wet diaper for 30 minutes. And you called me on the phone and ranted about how I will do him in if I ever catch him doing anything like that to my baby again. My little fat baby is going to be in a dry diaper. And if that son of a bitch doesn't understand that, then I'm going to have to cut him out the picture if you know what I mean. Don't you think that maybe if he hit her with an axe that you wouldn't just kick him out of the family, but you might just dispatch him to his great reward? And my mother again said, all I know is that my grandmother was a very sweet person. She was very gentle. And I can't imagine her doing anything like that. So I let it go again. But then I decided that maybe I could get more facts. Not just suppositions and speculating like we were doing, but actual facts. So I went to the microfiche section of the county building in Oakland County, where all of this had happened in 1927. I knew a date of when it happened. 
And I thought, even though a lot of times back then and even now, predominantly white newspapers do not pay a whole lot of attention to what goes on among black folks. If the black person is a perpetrator and the black person is a victim, then it might not get written up. But maybe the death of a black man who was from Mississippi, who wasn't even from here, the violent death and all the mayhem that occurred right before he died, maybe the white newspaper back then would have cared. So I went through all this microfiche. It took hours. And I finally found a newspaper article. And in the newspaper article, it said that when Albert Roberts broke into that house and got that axe and went after everybody, that among the people in that house was his youngest daughter, Mildred, the mean one. The one who had told him, you better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. And I thought about the way that Aunt Oyella and my mom had always told the story. They always put Aunt Mildred all the way in Chicago with Cousin Susie. Don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. Why did they always add that detail? They never talked about where anybody else was. They only specifically mentioned her, Aunt Mildred. By all accounts, the strongest and the meanest of all the people who were in that house when that fool came in there with that axe. So I decided that I would directly ask my mother if she thought maybe her Aunt Mildred, my great aunt, had killed Albert Roberts. I made a copy of the newspaper article. I mailed it to my mother. I waited until it arrived. And then, after she'd read it, I asked her again, don't you think that maybe these women, maybe together, maybe it was just a Mildred, killed him when they saw what he had done to their family members. And my mother then said, I don't know. I wasn't born. All I know is what they told me. And they told me the same thing that I have told you all of your life. So I let it go again. But recently when we've discussed it, I've been a bit more forceful in making these assertions. Because at this point, well, everybody that was there is dead. And just about everybody who heard the story in the first generation afterwards, most of them are dead. And I really want to know the truth. But my mother still insists that she cannot imagine her Aunt Mildred doing such a terrible thing or being so violent. I, however, can definitely imagine any woman in my family doing that same thing if they think that some man has killed three members of her family and if she has access to a weapon. I believe that any one of us would take his ass out and not bat an eye about it. Now, one of the bad things about being so willing to stand up for myself is that the desire to do so can be overwhelming. And I've had to learn to control that desire when I do think that someone has wronged me. Now, when I was in my 30s, there was a guy that I knew who I think sexually assaulted me. The last thing I remember about being with him was that I had gone to a club that he had recently opened. I had part of one drink. Now, I can hold my liquor. And I felt really dizzy and disoriented and very hot. And I said to him, I don't feel well. I have to go home. And he said, I'll follow you in my car in case the police pull you over because his family was very well connected politically. I think that he thought that if he simply displayed his driver's license 
to any police officer who might stop me trying to drive home. The police officer would simply leave. So I said, okay, fine. I remember driving home. I remember seeing his headlights in my rearview mirror, seeing that he was right behind me. And I remember watching him park his car on my street. I do not remember inviting him into my apartment or anything like that. But I do remember having a brief conversation with him in front of my building. And when I woke up the next morning in my living room, on my sofa, with my underpants torn, and I was bleeding vaginally. I was in my 30s. I had done my share of fucking. I wasn't, there was no reason for me to bleed, ever. I wasn't on my period. I was not expecting my period. I was always extremely regular with my period. I couldn't figure out why on earth my clothing would be torn, and why I still had my shirt and my top and my bra on. So I concluded what I think anybody with any sense would conclude, was that this motherfucker had taken advantage of me somehow. But I couldn't remember. I was so disturbed that I couldn't remember. I felt helpless, and I hate feeling helpless. The first thing I did was call him. He wouldn't return my calls. I couldn't figure out why. Then I realized, oh, his phone is in my apartment. His phone was under a sofa cushion. But he managed to call me and tell me that he wanted to come and get his phone. So he came to my apartment, he got his phone, and while I had him at my front door, because I wasn't letting him in, I told him that I thought something bad had happened between us, and I wanted to talk about it. And he said, oh, I can't talk right now, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. I'm planning my big party. He was having a big party at his parents' house, so he had to go. The next thing I did was contact my doctor, went to the gynecologist, got a full examination, I told him what had happened or what I believed had happened, and when he asked me who it was, I told him. My gynecologist said, That son of a bitch. He was my nephew's roommate when they first went away to college, when they were freshmen. And my nephew said that this boy and some other fellas that came from well-to-do homes had enough money to get an apartment off campus where they would take girls who might have been a little bit unwilling to have sex with them, unwilling or not. And I told my nephew, you need to get another roommate, first of all. Secondly, you don't need to associate with him at all, whatsoever. Don't even be in his company. You don't need to be around nobody like that. And my gynecologist said, I believe he did this. And by the way, your cervix is bruised, and I think you should press charges. Well, I wrestled with that because as a defense attorney, I knew that the burden of proof was going to be on me. I didn't even know if I had enough evidence for him to be arrested, let alone charged. I just didn't know if I had enough. And I was very, very depressed for a couple of weeks. I went home to spend some time with my family because I was so distraught. And I didn't tell my family. I just couldn't bring myself to tell them. And I was afraid of what my mother might do. Well, finally, one night I was talking to my mom and she could tell that something was wrong. And she said to me, you'll tell me when you're ready. Finally, I told her what happened. And my mother, the sweet little cookie baking first grade teacher, That was what my mother said. Let me tell you something. I think you know how to handle this. You're a big girl. You're an athlete. I know you like that aluminum bat that you play softball with. Aren't you the designated hitter or something like that? You're the only one on your team that's allowed to hit the ball over the fence. And they chose you as that because you're likely to hit it over the fence. Isn't that you? That's you, right? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, you go get that bat. And then you go deal with him. And you tell him that your mother said that it's okay for you to beat his ass with that bat. 
A few days later, I went to my friend's house. I have a lot of friends, girlfriends. I got the best girlfriends in the world. And all of them are ride or die. They will back me just like I'll back them. I only went to one of them with this. She was one of my oldest friends, and she was dating a new guy. So there was new love, and he was around all the time. But I went to her house when I was on my way to my acting class one night. And he was there, and I had to speak cryptically in front of him. So I told her, we got something we got to do after I get out of this class. So I need you to be ready to roll out with me. And she said, are we going to do the usual with uh, black hoodies and boots? And I thought, usual? What the hell is she talking about? We've never done anything quite like this before. We've done some other stuff, but we ain't never taken a bat to nobody before. But I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what you need to wear. And he wanted to know, what you talking about? What are you talking about? She said, we don't want you to know. We want you to stay out of this. But we finally relented. It was new love. He wanted to prove that he wanted to keep her safe. The plan was I was going to go get this guy. They were going to follow me in the boyfriend's SUV. And they were going to park in an alley that I had already chosen. There was a dumpster. There were several dumpsters, actually, in that alley. There was nothing there except this one club that ran alongside the alley. I put the bat behind one of the dumpsters. And I told them, you sit down here in the SUV. Don't get out the car unless I clearly signal to you that I need help or you see that I need help. You help me whoop his ass. And then we'll leave. And we won't run. We're going to walk away and just leave him on the ground if that's what it comes to. So they said, okay. I go into the club and get this fool who foolishly, I mean, he's a fool. He came out with me without putting up much of it. He didn't ask me why I was there. He knew I was angry at him. He knew what I thought he did. He had denied it vehemently but kind of was dismissive also. But when I said, can I talk to you? Will you come outside? And I'm wearing a black hoodie, black combat, but all black. This dumbass followed me outside into the alley. So we walk in the alley and he's just chattering. I've been wanting to talk to you because I don't like the way we left things and blah, 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 blah. I walked him over to the dumpster. I picked up the bat and I said, you know, and I know what you did. Now I got to fuck you up. And he put his hands up like he was being robbed and started begging immediately. Please don't do that. That's not true. I didn't do it. I would never do it. I respect you too much. I've always thought of you like a big sister. I would never, ever do anything like that. That just made me more angry. I said, now you're going to be a bitch. Now you're going to start begging. When that night you were taking advantage of me, you weren't thinking like this. You weren't humble at all. Well, he eventually, in his begging, I'm trying to move around him to get into the middle of the street so that this car can see me, so that I'm within sight of the SUV where my friends are. I had moved around him, and I raised up the bat, and he starts shielding his head, and he said, wait, wait, those people down there in that truck, they're going to see you. And I said, those people are with me. And I waved my hands gently, and they flashed the lights. And I told him, that's how serious I am about fucking you up. Well, then he collapsed down onto the curb and put his head in his hands and was just sobbing, saying, please, please, please don't. Well, I couldn't hit him with the bat. So I said to him, I'm not going to hit you with the bat, but let me tell you something. If anything fucked up happens to you, anything fucked up happens to your family, your dog, your mama, anybody, your daddy, I want you to think that it was me. You sitting here crying like a little bitch. I want you to know that from now on, if you see me someplace out, you leave. You leave before I see you. If I see you and I got time to get to you, I'm going to have to fuck you up. I might not do it right then. I might do it later. If your mama's house catches on fire five years from now, I want you to think of me. So I didn't hit him with the bat. 
But I did scare him out of many social functions for a couple of years after that until I moved away. If he saw me someplace, he left. If I went someplace with my girls and they saw him first, sometimes he would leave when he saw one of them because he assumed that I was with them, which was a smart thing for him to do. I did not strike him, but I did strike fear in his heart. And I am still torn to this day about whether I should have hit him with the bat. When I think back to that moment, I think about how my great aunt Mildred or whoever might have felt when they had to decide what to do with Albert Roberts. I think about Albert Roberts lying dead in the backyard of 146. And while I might have been justified in beating the shit out of this man with that bat, while I was certainly being true to myself and true to the other Roberts and Winfield women by hitting him with that bat, I'm glad that I didn't. I am equally glad that I am a product of those women. Nobody should just fuck with us all willy-nilly. Nobody should try to harm us. Nobody should try to harm the people that we love because we are capable of doing some really bad things to people who we think have wronged us. But we're also capable of making sound, logical decisions. And in this case, the son of a bitch that I could have left laying on the ground was not worth the trouble that it might have caused me. I think that I would have dishonored the women in my family by jeopardizing my career, my very freedom, by taking that bat to him like he had coming. But as a Roberts Winfield woman, I know what I can do. And I know that in that instance, I did what was right for me. I still think I am as attractive and formidable and intelligent and interesting as any of the Roberts women. And that's how they raised me to be. And I still think that I carry myself the way they taught me to carry myself, which is to make it clear to all around me, don't fuck with me, because I'm one of them. This is Risk. This is Alicia Keys behind me now, and we just heard from Jill Chenault. Oh my goodness, what a story. And that one was edited by our story editor, John LaSala. Wonderful work from both Jill and John there. 
Okay, now this brings us to our final story on this best of risk number 14. This was a story that was shared the last time risk was in San Francisco by a wonderful young woman named Liz Headland. Here she is now with a story we call Expiration. My parents met in the Coast Guard, and depending on what time of year you measure it, they were about 36 years apart. When I was born, my dad was 63, and my mom was 28. My dad always smelled like sawdust, hard work, sweat, and chihuahuas. (laughs) He was a worrywart, a World War II vet, and would always get angry when I cried. My mom, on the other hand, had a bit of a dark past. When she was growing up, she was physically and sexually abused. She was raped while she was in the military, and she lived with bipolar disorder for most of her life. She identified as a lesbian, which created an interesting dynamic between my parents, as you could probably understand. She had an arrangement with my dad when I was a child that she could sleep with other women, but not other men. She was a motorcycle rider, she loved poker and beer, especially dark stouts and porters, and she would play guitar for me every chance that she had. Now, whenever we were driving somewhere and somebody was giving her directions, she would, uh, if the other person would say, go straight here, she'd say, "Ah uh-uh, always forward, never straight. Now, whenever I said goodbye to my mom, she would give me the greatest, biggest bear hug. She'd get sweat all over my face because she was early menopausal. And she'd say, I love you, and squeeze me. She would have done literally anything for me, and especially one day she drove all the way from Eureka to Berkeley to pick me up when I had a panic attack. Now, when I was age two or three, my mom was in the National Guard, and Warner Brothers for the movie Outbreak called in the National Guard as extras for that particular movie. In a particular scene, my mom's walking across the road and Dustin Hoffman's stunt double is driving a Hummer over this very same road. He goes over the hill and hits her and she flies 15 feet just about and hits the pavement. She got up like everything was fine. But of course, a couple of months later, she was experiencing a great deal of pain, so she went to the doctor and discovered that she had herniated discs in her back and neck. Now after this, She had surgery after surgery, too many for me to count or remember, but what I do remember was seeing her laying down in her bedroom in the dark, watching TV with a neck brace on for somewhere around a year. I always felt crushed and alone when I saw her like this because she couldn't play with me, she couldn't play guitar, we couldn't cook together, and she was just immobilized by these surgeries. And shortly after this, she developed an addiction to the muscle relaxant soma because what doctors prescribed in the 90s were opiates. And this was particularly bad when I was in middle school and high school. She overdosed more times than I can count, and I have a very difficult time distinguishing these memories or really remembering each individual overdose because it was up to 100 times by my count. It was on every birthday that my family had, it was on every holiday, and it was often in the middle of the year in quick succession. But I do have one particular memory where we were wrapping presents for Christmas, which was a couple days later, and we were going to go visit our family, and she and I were hanging out and having a good time. 
And then her movement started to slow and jerk. Her eyes glazed over and dilated. Her eyelids began to droop, and she slowly sat down and completely stopped moving. I immediately felt panic. Where's my mom? What's wrong with her? Why won't she speak? My thoughts would race. Now, depending on her breathing when she would overdose, we would either take her to the hospital, call an ambulance, or let her sleep it off. We never really knew what the best course of action was because sometimes we didn't know if she would wake up. Now, when she did wake up, she would apologize and she'd say, I'll never do this again, I promise, I'll go to rehab. But this happened so repeatedly over so many years that eventually I just learned it was a lie. And I became extremely hypervigilant and angry with her. I'd scream at her while she was doped up. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this? She'd just shake her head, fall asleep, and never remember a word that I said the next day. I would constantly search for signs of an overdose and my mom's medication, her movements, her eyes, and I became the early warning system, and I'm sure she began to rely on this because every time she overdosed, she could have died. Now, this leads up to July of 2014. My mom overdosed, fell down the stairs, broke her nose, and got a concussion. This time when she woke up, she was crying and her words were jumbled, and I connected with her for the first time about what she had been doing. We hugged each other sweetly. We cried together, and we talked about her going to rehab. My family rallied around her, and we did things with her, and for a little while, she didn't overdose. Things were good. But on December 31st of 2014, I get a phone call from my dad at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He had searched the entire house for her and eventually found her neatly placed between two pieces of furniture in her bedroom like she didn't want to be found, and she was barely breathing. So I go to the hospital, and I see my dad in the emergency room with my mom, and he's 87 and walking with a cane by this point, so he's shut down. Normally, he'd stay the entire time until my mom woke up so that he could drive her home, but this time, he was just too old and tired. My mom's barely awake, so I talk to the doctor, and she suggests that I go through my mom's room and I see what kind of medications I can find so we can calculate how much she took and what it was. So I drive my dad back to my parents' house, and I lay him down in his musty room with this chihuahua pee all over the floor, and chihuahuas on the bed. And I go to my mom's bedroom, and there's bottles of chew and spit everywhere, and there's clutter all over the furniture, and clothes all over the bed, and more chihuahua pee on the floor, and I search for the pill bottles. But surprisingly and unusually, I find little to nothing. There's empty pill bottles from probably weeks or months ago, and none of it, none of it is relevant to this overdose. So I drive back to the hospital, and I present these pill bottles to the doctor, and she goes in and asks my mom, did you do this on purpose? What did you take, and how much? And my mom says, no, it was an accident. I just took my regular medication, and I took a little bit more than I expected because I was in a great deal of pain. And I am taken aback and furious with her because I know that if she says this is an accident, there's nothing we can do. We can't take her to the local mental hospital. She can't go to rehab immediately. So the doctor leaves. I chat with the doctor for a minute, and I go back in 
to see my mom, hot tears are streaming down my face. And I say, why do you keep doing this? Don't you care about how this affects me or dad? What about your health? When is this going to stop? And I'm feeling crushed all over again like I did when I was eight years old, that first time I can remember that she overdosed. I'm pissed at her, so I start berating her, and all she does is stonewall me. She refuses to make eye contact, and then she asks for her chewing tobacco, and I say, what the fuck, Mom? No. I'm not going to allow you to have more chemicals in your body after you just recovered from an overdose. So she starts pulling the electrodes off her chest and the IV out of her arm, and nothing I say stops her from doing this until I say, the insurance isn't going to pay for this if you discharge yourself. So she stops, lays back, crosses her arms, and refuses to make eye contact with me. And I'm exhausted after arguing with her and crying in the emergency room with her for three or four hours, so I go to the waiting room. I'm still crying, and I'm trying to read this book, and then a nice couple comes up to me, starts to check in, and says, like, what are you doing with your life? Are you going to college? Do you work? So they start to cheer me up a little bit, and eventually we go outside and smoke a cigarette, And they start to say that you have to plant seeds, water them, tend to them, and care for them in your life so that your life will grow. And this beautiful sentiment cheers me up, and I eventually stop crying. But then my mom suddenly comes out, and her face is red, she's slurring her words, her eyes are still glossy and dilated, and she sternly but quietly says, I want to go home now, please. And the guy stops and looks at her and says, Mom, you better behave now. And she says, what the fuck did he just say to me? And storms off. I quickly say goodbye to this couple and I catch up with my mom and I say, what are we going to do about this? She quietly says, I have a plan. And my anger wells up inside me because every single time she's overdosed, she says, I'm going to fix this. And she never fucking does. She just continues to make this mistake over and over, ruining my life and my family. So we have a stern, quiet, and angry ride back to my parents' house. Still smells like piss, of course, and there's paper towels to cover it up. And I go into my dad's bedroom where he's watching TV, and I hand him my mom's phone He quietly says, I love you, and I say, I love you, back. I go into the hallway, and I see my mom standing in the dark. Her face is cold, pale, and stern. She looks me dead in the eye and turns away without a word. Now, as I said, this is very unusual for her because every other single time I would have said goodbye to her, she would have given me the greatest bear hug, got sweat all over my face, and told me how much she loved me and how much she wanted me to take care. But I'm furious with her at this moment, so I leave at about 10.30 at night to go to Neeland, this secluded place up in the woods of a windy mountain road. And I get to the cabin where I'm staying with my boyfriend at the time, and he has a spread of bread and cheese and meat and fruit and crackers out for me. We eat a little bit, and I tell him about the experience I just had with my mom, and he gives me a little bit of sympathy, and I say, there's nothing more I can do. She'll continue to overdose, and it just can't be my problem anymore. I can't handle trying to fix her anymore. I just have to let her live her life. And for the first time, I feel resolute 
like I have some sort of breathing room or leeway room and I feel detached from my mother. And I'm exhausted because he and I had spent the entire night up until three o'clock in the morning the night before arguing. And I just spent four hours in the emergency room crying over my mother, so we go to bed. In the middle of the night, my phone blows up and there's a bunch of texts and phone calls, but I ignore it and go back to sleep because I'm still exhausted. And then there's a knock at the door. And I look at the clock and it's 2.30 a.m. And I wonder, what in the world? But I just pretend it's a practical joke and I roll over and fall back asleep. And then there's another louder knock at the door. My boyfriend bolts up, goes to the door and checks it. And I hear my sister say, Elizabeth! And I get a lump in my throat. My stomach jumps and falls through my body to the floor. How would my sister be here and why would she find me up this windy mountain road where she's never been before if something wasn't seriously wrong? So I roll over and I put my cold contacts in my eyes and I stumble upward off the sleeping pad we have on the floor and I see my dad, my brother-in-law, my nephew and my sister standing seven feet away in the doorway. And I say, she did it, didn't she? And my sister says, she's gone, honey. And my world starts spinning. It's lost around me. My hands are on my face. I'm wailing and my chest is imploding. It's somehow densely heavy and an empty ache all at the same time. Like what I imagine it feels like to fall off a cliff face down. But I know my dad is watching me this entire time, so I choke back my tears and I squeeze him and he still smells like chihuahuas and sawdust. But then I suddenly realize that he had to be the one to find her. So I break down again and somebody tries to touch me and I flail and my nephew says, give her some air. We chat a bit. And my family decides to go to my sister's house while I stay with my boyfriend at the cabin. And they leave. I go to my sister's house about a day later, and I go into this pink room in the back of her house where there's lace on the walls and arts and crafts supplies everywhere. And it is the worst room to find out in that not 20 minutes after I left, my mom went into the basement of my parents' house and shot herself twice in the head. Now, the real risk of this story is not the suicide. It is not how many times I screamed in my mother's face. It is not how many times she overdosed. It is that ever since she died, I have felt a tremendous amount of relief. And of course, I miss her. And of course, I'm devastated without her. And every time I think of that night, I have that same imploding ache in the depths of my chest. But she's not in pain anymore. And I wish her spirit happy warmth and wealth. But the real shift I feel is the expiration of my responsibility for someone else's life. Thank you.
That is all for this, the best of risk number 14. This is Beth Orton behind me now. We just heard from Liz Headland, and today's episode was edited by Jeff Barr. Well, listen, folks, we've had two pretty big financial shocks this year. (laughs) The first is that not nearly as many people as we had hoped would buy the Risk book have bought it yet. And I say yet because you can still buy it. You know, the, the Christmas is coming. You can buy lots of copies for friends. But the other is that we've watched how big media companies are now producing podcasts and basically all the listenership, all the new ears that are coming to podcasts are just going to those that are produced by these giant corporations with tons of money to spend on getting the word out to journalists and marketing their podcasts and stuff like that. So us indie guys, even though we've been around, this is our 10th year, We're not getting new listenership when you get right down to it. So I'm happy to say that the last time I asked for more of you guys to sign up to support the show on patreon.com slash risk, a lot of you did answer the call. We are so grateful for that. We now have 879 patrons giving us a total of $4,242 per month. And that is a huge help to our huge, well, huge for an indie podcast, our huge staff. But remember, that only adds up to about $50,000 per year. And while that number is amazing, that's only a tiny bit more than enough to cover one person that works for us for an annual salary. But we have over 20 people on our staff. We keep the show going with other income sources like live shows, advertisements, but the advertisers come and go. And it's not possible for us to do more than a couple live shows a month because they take a ton of work to produce. That's why support from our fans via Patreon is the best way for us to have a reliable income source every month that doesn't require us to take on additional expenses and work. And best of all, almost every penny you donate to us through Patreon goes directly to us with only minimal fees deducted to help keep patreon going so even if you donate one dollar per month it's a huge help to us so head on over to patreon.com slash risk now and become a patron for as little as one dollar a month or whatever amount you want to give that's patreon.com slash risk now here's where we're appearing live next On October 20th, Risk is back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Come on out to the Bootleg Theater in L.A. on October 20th. On October 25th, we are in New York at Caveat. That's uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. On October 25th, we're in New York City at Caveat. On November 14th, We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's the big body slash risk show that we're doing with Dixie De La Tour of Body Storytelling from San Francisco. So it's an evening of kinky stories on November 14th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. 
Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Oh, oh, oh. 